coming to you from the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains, Denver, Colorado. It's the Savage Cast, a Savage Worlds podcast brought to you by the Rocky Mountain Savages. Here are your hosts, Chris Savage Mummy Fox and Christopher Savage Bull Landauer. Hey, old savages. And welcome to episode three of the Savage Cast. The corporate gods are petty and cruel. In this episode, we interview Charles White of Fabled Environments on the resurrection of his Olympus Inc. Kickstarter, which was unjustly crucified by the petty tyrants at Kickstarter for not following their arcane and secret rituals. But fear not, Olympus Inc. will rise again starting April 5th, 2016, so there's still time for you to spread the good word about the unique setting which combines the war between the Olympians and titans of Greek myth and the mega-corporation intrigue of cyberpunk. Looking so forward to that. It's going to be a good setting. I'm really glad he's uh, going to redo that. And it's a two-week Kickstarter, so it's going to be quick. Yeah, I'll find that's coming up just in a few days, so get on that. And uh, also, he put out an advertisement on Facebook. He's got a profile background picture for Facebook that uh, advertises the date. So if you guys want to help spread the word about that, um, you can find the pic on this blog post or uh, on our Facebook page. Also, you raucous and untamed mobs of savages sent us dozens of questions about the second coming of Rifts for Savage Messiah himself, Sean Patrick Fannin, whom we recently sat down with to talk about world building, savaging the Rifts, and test driving some of the Savage Worlds characters from a half dozen settings uh, that find their way into a new calling in the fast, furious version of Kevin Simbita's post-apocalyptic blunder. It was a blast. Fun game. Lots of different characters out there. We'll bring you that. Um, we took all the questions you guys sent us. We piled them on an altar, set them alight, and the Savage Gaming Gods answered your prayers. So stay tuned at the end of this episode for a sneak peek of that interview uh, from our next episode. Do you even riffs, bro? And so I have to ask you, what's the question they didn't answer? When's it coming out, folks? <laughs> <laughs> when they're ready for it and it's ready to come out. You all will know about it, most definitely. It'll be all over the place. It's the only answer you're going to get until you you will know. You will know when it comes out. We also want to tell you about a few things that uh, are coming out for Savage Worlds out there in this Savage sphere. Uh, Misfit Studios just released a new monster brief called Mixed Foes, and it's four new monsters for Savage Worlds games for less than two bucks. You can get that on RPG Now, Drive Through RPG. Uh, go to the Misfit Studios site, which we'll have definitely a link to in our show notes. You can't beat that price. Two you bucks? You can't. Less than two bucks. Yeah. And you always need more monsters. Who, Whoever has enough monsters. Yeah, I, I agree. Our friends at Emilio Villa, which Ross Watson, a Denver area uh, writer is is a friend of the show. Uh, they released Accursed Science and Sea, which is an expansion to their Accursed setting. The cover of that looks delicious. It's awesome. And then the other big one coming out of Peg themselves are the Savage Tales of Horror. These are three books that bring you five adventures each to bring terror to your gaming table and to haunt your players even on their way home. Uh, you can maximize your potential by buying all three of the Savage Tales of Horror. Uh, it, they're calling it the Best of Horror Bundle, and then you're going to get 10% off the other horror titles, any other horror title. Uh, I bought the first one. Really good. I really liked it. Uh, had some really good adventures in it. Uh, one I helped uh, kind of edit a little bit. I didn't do a ton, but yeah, I, I did help a little bit with it. Uh, so it was kind of cool to uh, see it in print. 15 different adventures, that's almost uh, getting into, like, plot point territory. It's a lot of content. Yeah, and they're all just various different adventures. The one I helped a little bit on uh, was for Deadlines Noir. Ooh, like that setting. Um, and so there's some general basic horror, and so all, all kinds of different settings. I think the book I bought, Shane wrote one of the adventures, kind of in the style of the old Tales from the Crypt comics. Uh, that was part of his inspiration for doing this. So, yeah, go out there, check it out. Go to Peg's website, go to the Peg store, and look for Savage Tales of Horror. Awesome. But between that and the release of Rippers and some uh, 
I call horror the the newer releases for Deadlands um, are pretty gritty. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of good horror stuff coming out in pretty much every flavor of uh, Savage World, so it's a good time to scare your players. Yeah, and if you're looking for uh, kind of of a different type of horror uh, that is really well done for Savage Worlds, I can't recommend more Realms of Cthulhu. That's a good one. Love that game. That's Reality Blur's uh, great game. Great sanity rules. Great gritty damage rules. It really does Cthulhu really well. Yes, you will go insane and die, hopefully in that order. You might go, you might die and then go insane, but you know, either way. And, and I always think Cthulhu game, if you're not insane or dead by the end of the game, especially if it's a one-shot, either you or the GM did something wrong. Yeah, pretty much. I agree, 100%. You know, I, I expect to be dead by the end of those, and, and I, you know, I play that way. <laughs> That's the way to play. So, we'd like to give a special Savage Cast shout-out to Ron Blessing, whose Savage Worlds gaming and podcasting evangelism has a lot to do with why we're here. Yay, Ron! Ron started the Games the Thing podcast with his wife and co-host Vern. Uh, this is actually what introduced me to Savage Worlds. Their podcast was the first one I heard talking about the, the system. I would listen to it, and if there wasn't Savage Worlds content, I would write Ron and say, Hey, Ron, where's the Savage Worlds content? <laughs> and he wrote me back and said, We have a lot of Savage Worlds content. We can't do it in every single show. But I wanted it in every single show. Um, it did inspire me to run Savage Worlds. It inspired me to found the Rocky Mountain Savages. From there, Ron and Vern had to step away from the games of thing, and they started Smiling Jack's Bar and Grill. Uh, and that is where I got my first chance to host a podcast uh, with Ron, Vern, and Justin Suzuki. Uh, and then we brought in Chris. Yay! Uh, so the Savage Bowl got brought into that. So if it weren't for Smiling Jacks as well, Savage Cast wouldn't be here. And then we do want to also say a thank you to the Savage Bloggers Network. They helped big time with the launch of Savage Cast. So thank you. To Ron, Vern, Justin, and Christian. Hail Savages! Oh, it's kind of like the Savage World's butterfly effect, you know? If they didn't it do is. what they did, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. So, be uh, happy to share the love on that. And the guys are still sharing the love with us. The Ron Blessing and Christian Serrano, um, who are both currently producing over at the Savage Bloggers Network, um, have invited the Savage Mommy and I onto their SBN Hangout on Air which shall be the last Monday in March, uh, which I believe is the 28th, at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 7.30 Mountain, because, you know, Mountain Time is the only time that really matters. And exactly. uh, to talk about podcasting and Savage Worlds. So their last uh, hangout was awesome. It featured Carl Kiesler, and uh, he will actually be our guest at Tacticon 2016. So if you can't make it out or you really want to get excited for Tacticon, be sure to check out their video, uh, which you can still view, where Carl kind of displays some of his newest creations, which are just amazing. That guy is extremely talented. And, uh, a link to subscribe to the SBN Hangouts on Air is in our podcast for this episode or our post for this episode, so don't miss it. Uh, but you should go ahead and just subscribe to the whole SBN feed while you're at it because they put out um, a lot of really great Savage Worlds uh, related content. So mark your calendar so you can catch us live and perhaps even ask some questions on the evening of the 28th. And I wanted to throw one more thing out there as well. Uh, every Wednesday night, starting at seven or uh, 8 o'clock, between 8 and 8.15 Mountain Time, 7 and 7.15 Pacific Time, uh, I am on a show uh, called the Savage Worlds GM Hangout with, it's myself, uh, Jared, Savage Eddie Gunning, uh, David Scott, Jib, and Scott W., the Savage Cheerleader, who just came back from a deployment. He's been out protecting all of us, so thank you, Yay! Scott W. Yay! Hail Savages! Go to, go to G+. When every Wednesday night, we rarely miss a Wednesday night starting about 8, 8.15 Mountain Time. And come watch and uh, see what the, the Savage Worlds GM Hangout is talking about. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. And on the last one, um, I think the gauntlet was thrown down. The, uh, I happened to be in the audience and pop in with a question. And uh, I think it was uh, David... Um, mentioned that uh, I'd, I'd have to give uh, the host, uh, Gunning, a run for his money. So what was that about? 
So what we were talking about before, I, I don't know if you were there the whole time, but we were talking about, you know, people running games. We were talking about wanting someone to run uh, Day After Ragnarok for us and thinking, oh, man, who, who could put up with the four or five of us? Because sometimes they're not the easiest people to run games for. And so we were talking about who who we could throw the gauntlet to. Who do we think would be on par and be able to match us one on one and run a game for us? They saw you come in and they're like, "Oh, the Savage Bull could do it. Oh, he nice. Could, he could he could handle all of us." Challenge accepted. We'll have to do a, a live play of that. Yeah, we were gonna. It probably it would probably be a live play. It would probably be on Roll Twenty uh, and a, and a live Google Hangout. So we'll see what we can do to get that uh, scheduled and uh, you know. The Savage Bull can run for the crazy people that are the GM hangout. Oh, that should be a lot of fun. The uh, GM for GMs, the, G- the Game Master's Game Master. Exactly, yeah, and that's really what it would be. Awesome. Well, challenge accepted. Without further ado, we will, uh, after this brief musical interlude, we'll be back with the most Maximus of Pontifexes himself, Charles the White, to talk all things Olympus Inc., so stick around. How's it going, Charles? It's going well, thanks. So tell us about the Kickstarter news. Well, um, I'm excited that April 5th we're going to be relaunching the Olympus Inc. Uh, Kickstarter. We'll be doing a lot of work on it to just make it more appealing graphically um, and just kind of cleaning up little bits and pieces based on uh, some feedback we got. So we are just super excited to be able to launch that again and, and move it through to funding. So for the few people who haven't followed what's going on with the Kickstarter, why did the first Kickstarter get stopped? Well, and there is two reasons that I found out. Kickstarter is a wonderful, wonderful platform and a wonderful organization and extremely cryptic. Um, the The first reason was that I had, and this is very common knowledge hopefully by now, but I had two accounts, one that I never used, but for some reason, I guess it's because it's tied to my uh, Hotmail account, Everybody was following me on that one via Kickstarter. Um, and then I had my Fabled Environments account, which I backed everything with, uh, 20 projects, and then launched four, including uh, Olympus Inc. So in order to get the word out to um, those people that backed me, I backed the Kickstarter through my uh, Hotmail account, one, the original, that I never used, uh, for a dollar. And that was one of the things that Kickstarter cited um, as the reason why they suspended. Um, The other, which I haven't talked about much because we're trying to figure it out, it's been absolutely bizarre, is some sort of an IP issue um, where they're claiming that it looked like we had a bunch of people that were trying to do something untoward. Um, I I don't understand it all, but they, they were claiming that a bunch of pledges came from the same IP address. Probably did, since... My partner is in Barry, Italy, and he's been hitting two of the colleges there pretty darn hard. Um, nice. So, yeah, and there's absolutely... Yeah, and there's no appeal process at all. And they don't have any... Um, there's nothing to compel them to tell us exactly um, the reasons for the uh, suspension. But those are the two that they've kind of hinted at, so... So they basically told you, Charles, you've been a very bad boy. Yeah, which is horrible when, you know, you're trying to run a company with, you know, high integrity and they're saying, well, and trying to let everybody know that, I mean, we've been in business for over 10 years doing this. And, I mean, it's not worth my time or my energy or the company to do something silly like that, um, anything unethical with a Kickstarter. It just isn't, so... Right, just, you know, it, it honest mistake. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And um, just trying to be transparent through this entire process. And I think moving forward, uh, we'll try and even do a better job of doing that. So hopefully, um, you know, we'll move us through to funding. Transparency goes a long way, and you've done a great job with that. I appreciate that. Yeah, we've tried really hard with that because, I mean, when you hear a Kickstarter has been suspended – Everybody goes to the deepest, darkest because there have been some projects on uh, Kickstarter that have been less than truthful and um, have been a nightmare. So now that you've been redeemed, 
when is your plan to launch the new Kickstarter again so everyone can uh, save up their pennies and make sure they jump on it on the first day? Sure. Uh, it's going to be April 5th, and we're only going to launch it for about two weeks because we had such a huge outpouring of support um, that we feel like people will jump right back in and, uh, and back it, which we're really excited about. Um, yeah, you guys were like 95% no, no, or more? 98% funded. 90- <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about somebody that was in the middle of tears. I mean, not literally, but almost. I mean, I get I get I this message as we're going into my son's first kindergarten dance. It was, oh, yeah, that's it was lovely. But, um, you know, it, it happens and you just learn from what happens and move forward. The, uh, so tell us, what are what changes are you making for the Kickstarter on the round two? Not a whole lot. Um, one of the biggest things you'll see is just a, a look change. So what we did is a lot of the way we presented information was just simply um, text, and we've switched it all into more of a nice-looking graphic format. Um, it's an opportunity for nice. us to make it look nice, to help people understand, yes, we know how to do layout, yes, we understand that, um, but also just to get some little bits and pieces of pictures uh, little bits and pieces of the artwork that's involved with it as well. We have a preview document, which uh, I don't know if you guys have seen, but it's 11 pages that really gives you a taste of the setting and some of the artwork and where our head is at. Yeah, the artwork is just gorgeous. You guys really hit it out of the park on that. Yeah, Mirko, um, and I can never pronounce his last name, but he is an insane artist. He's amazing. And the pieces that he's produced for us has been great. We've worked with a couple other artists, which are amazing, but, I mean, really, he'll be the main focus of the art for the entire book along with one other artist that's a very similar style so the good thing is is we'll present a book that has good solid art and very very similar art so it won't look disjointed at all um it'll be very very similar so we're really excited about that how's the work process been working with the italians you know half a world away uh, interesting um i mean i've been blessed with a very very good partner uh gilbert gallo it's kind of funny we've worked kind of uh, parallel in some things and never really worked together but um it just the time difference has been funny because he's you know getting settled in and gotten his kids to bed when i'm trying to drive home from work so that doesn't always work too well but um it's worked we've done really well together um just timing has been an issue but generally speaking it's been phenomenal i mean he he, he speaks better english than i do i swear so uh, <laughs> The, uh, so for the, like, the one or two listeners we have who haven't heard of Olympus Inc., what's the elevator pitch? It's basically um, uh, it's a, um, a dystopian, almost near dystopian society. So basically it's an urban fantasy setting. And the Olympians have been kicked out of the heavens because they're just they're hubris. The Titans are, are now in power, but Gaia the Earth Mother has put some controls in. So um, the setting is one where the players play... Um, different types of demigods that are trying in essence to um help the olympians retain their throne that's the higher arching thing if you will excellent yeah so you've got like kind of flavors of cyberpunk um the the olympian gods um modern kind of conspiracy corporations yeah exactly you've got it's got a nice cyberpunk feel it's also got the espionage flavor to it um it's it, it's it's a fun setting in that regard. So it's it's got a got a good balance of both. Then you've got the magic kind of thrown in there as well, if you will. So what was the the idea or spark that uh, or question that inspired you to create this setting? Well, it's funny because Gilbert wrote a setting called Mythos. Um, he wrote that for Mystic Throne Entertainment, and so I kind of opened my mouth and said, "Hey, what do you think this would look like if we moved into the modern world?" And of course, that's when um, Gilbert said, so when are we writing this thing? Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's where the question came from because I was a big Percy Jackson fan. Huge. I've read all the books and everything and just thought it would be awesome to bring that into an RPG setting. But as we talked, I didn't want to do Percy Jackson. I wanted to have something that was our own, but I still like the concept of bringing the demigods forward where Percy Jackson is kind of uh, campy, if you will. Sure, and, and a little younger audience. It's like you know, yeah. high school kind of stuff. Exactly. This is going to be a little darker, more more cyberpunkish. Yeah. So like you know, the Percy Jackson, like the parents' generation, instead of dealing with uh, high school kind of age, it's like the, the corporations, and you know, it could be a little more grittier with that. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we try and shoot for: is a little more grit, um, a little bit more darkness, but not so far that you're full dystopian. 
Yeah, a good balance, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Too much grim dark, and it's not as fun. Well, and the good thing about doing that um, is that you can set this in today's society. You can say, like we have, look, the corporations are bigger than they are now. Um, you've got different corporations that are controlling a lot of things, but it's still today. You still have governments. You still have police forces. You still have things like that. Granted, they're being manipulated by the corporations, but it's not like a full cyberpunk world where it's they are the corporations. So you can pull from today's headlines. You can use uh, other props, if you will, um, that you readily have available at your fingertips, which is kind of nice. Yeah, you can almost make it a day in the life. Exactly. Exactly. What's going on in today? And then kind of adapt that and say, well, really what this is is it's this corporation um, that's actually driving that, and this is what um, the world sees. So knowing you've got a really great response on the first time out the door and you're going to get funded, what are your plans for extensions after the Kickstarter? Well, we've already we've always said that we want this to be a line, um, and we're very committed to that. So in the base book, we only present six of the Olympians. Um, I say only because it's the six Olympians, um, the, the uh, corporations that are attached to them, uh, the various powers that folks that are what we call um, paragons or, or descendants of the of those gods the pure line descendants their powers as well so i mean it's a lot involved with those six but we want to expand forward and be able to do the rest of them um you know one of the ones that i really want to look at and write and, and use would be hephaestus which is not presented in this book but you know nice. you're talking about the major tinkerer so um the great thing about our writing process is we talk through everything um and then before we even you know quote-unquote, pick up a pan and pad, if you will. Um, and one of the things we were kicking around is, what is this Festus going to look like? Are they going to have, we, we may have something along the lines of clockwork monsters, probably will. Um, we may have something, um, you know, I've always been a favorite of, like, Gollum Tech from GURPS, where it's a magical right. form of cybernetics. We may do that, I don't know. That's a, that's a great way to kind of, I mean, it's an interesting choice on not having it in the original book, but it can really take your setting into a different place as an extension. Exactly. And, and, and of course with that, you know, we'll, we'll put in some uh, plot points and things like that um, to help ex expand it and, and some more NPCs, things like that. So it's not going to be just a, a short little little thing that's going to go out. We're going to try and make it a, a good quality um, resource for players and for GMs. See, you and Gilbert kind of jumped in with two feet. I mean, you go from your very first time out the door with a setting to we're going to make it a line. Yeah, exactly. Well, it was funny because we talked about it. And where do we start? What do we do? And that was part of the design process is, well, we could do all these gods. Well, okay, but then what do you do with it? Because I think both of us were really frustrated with lines that that just kind of die. Um, I got this great book and no other uh, support comes for it. Well, I mean, not everybody can sit down and make their own adventures. Not everybody has that talent and they like to draw from things. And so having uh, a line will help with that. But also being able to expand and not have you know a massive book that somebody has a tome, if you will, is also a nice thing to have. Yeah, I think that kind of separates Savage Worlds from GURPS. Uh, you mentioned GURPS before, and I kind of came from the GURPS world, and they they put out great setting books, but don't really put out any campaigns. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they do great at, at giving you background and setting. But no, you're right. There isn't a whole lot in the way of campaign. So, I mean, I've got this wonderful book. What do I do with it? And they do have, to their credit, sometimes they'll put some plot points and things in there, if you will, or, or little venture ideas. But um, there, there's so much more you can do with it. And, um, you know, we, we actually have people now that are that are interested in the line. And, I mean, uh, some of them are going to be writing stretch goals. But I think as the book is released, you'll have more and more people that are in the industry that become interested in it and want to are willing to do some stuff with it. So I think it's keeping this as a vibrant line is not going to be a problem. Yeah, what magic did you cast to get so many different people backing an unknown project from the beginning? Well, part of it is is that although the project is unknown, we're not. We've been around for 10 years, and we've run three other Kickstarters. Um, we've released adventures for the maps, so people understand that we pride ourselves on extremely high quality, and we're known by a lot of people so i think there was a translation that came from there not only that but i mean we have some great people involved in this project as well so in between gilbert um uh, daniel who's the the art director working with Mirko, um he's really uh, helped 
him and Gelbert have helped really hit the people in Europe. Um, just a lot of folks um, that we've contacted, um, other professionals in the industry, are um, know what we do and, and and really like what we do. So that's been uh, a wonderful resource to get the word out. So you mentioned you were going to run the Kickstarter for 15 days. Yeah. What's your What's your time to have the core book out after the Kickstarter? Well, we purposely listed it as August, um, although we've got most of the writing done. We've almost about 90%. There's just a few little things we've got to do left. But I'd rather give a date farther out than give you a short date and not meet it. Um, that I, I, it leaves a bitter taste in people's mouths, and we don't want to do that. So I'd rather say August and then uh, be able to deliver it earlier. Um, I'm anticipating the PDF will be out a little bit earlier than that, but I, you know, I think that's a good solid date. Perfect. Well, so we know enough about Olympus Inc. Now, I'm definitely to hop on and buy it. Um, let's know more about some Charles in info. So, sure. how did you get into gaming? I was in um, high school, um, and I had a friend of mine that had the expert edition of D and D, uh, and he brought it to school and we started we took a look at it he had a little group that he was playing with and i was just immediately hooked i just thought this was the best thing ever do you and remember your first character i don't um i do remember that one of the one of the first adventures we went on i was the new guy in the group and you know monty hall would be shocked by what they gave out uh, <laughs> yes yeah, yes so it, it in a, it was in an adventure and i'll never forget this one and the group was just antagonizing the GM. You know, I bet you Tiamat's around the corner. I bet you Tiamat's around the corner. You got to understand, everybody had artifacts by this point. And here I am. <laughs> I'm an eighth level dwarf. Everybody else has, you know, artifacts. I'm okay. I have a crossbow. That's awesome. Um, and the GM finally got mad. She said, "He said, will you find a scroll?" And well, I read it. And then Tiamat appeared. And of course, the guy cast disintegration. And he's like, "Well, I got to roll a one on this die for it to work." He, of course, you know throws the die on the table and rolls a one and we killed Tiamat. So it was awesome. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things you learn from GMing and as you look back, you go, no, 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 no. <laughs> but yeah, um, it, I remember that group to some extent, but I mean, it really wasn't until I got into to college, actually beyond college that I found a really, really good group that we game with for a long time. Uh, how did you find Savage Worlds? Well, this is kind of a funny story. Um, Savage Worlds kind of found me. Um, I have known Clint Black for and Jody for about 20 years. Um, Clint and Jody are both godparents to my son. So as he started transitioning, oh, you are in La Familia. Yeah, then. exactly. And I mean, we've been we've been very blessed to have us have them in our family, and um, we we we, get, we gamed with them for quite a while. And then as they kind of transitioned into Savage Worlds and introduced to the group, we moved towards Savage Worlds. So it was kind of a logical progression um, for us. And I just love the ease of the system and the ease of the um, prep and everything like that. So it wasn't just, let's try this and be done. I mean, it really stuck. Here's a question we asked of the Blacks that came up during our last episode. What's it been like being a religious person in the role-playing community? Have you have you found the stereotypes to be true or not, or how's you know? Tell us about your background there. Well, um, I'm kind of a unique uh, animal in the in the in the uh, role-playing world. I'm a seminary graduate, so I have two master's degrees. One is um, focused on American religion, or focused on uh, uh, American church history or church history in general, really, and theology. But the second is an Amer uh, advanced master's that's in American religion and culture, so um, I've got a lot of grounding in that community, but, you know, it, it is funny. Uh, you do have some interesting reactions by people towards great gaming. Um, I'm very opinionated and very strong in in, in what I feel about gaming. I, I, I think it's wonderful, and I've seen the benefits that it brings to, to kids and adults alike, um, but I, I think, and a lot of us face this, is that you, se you tend to separate those two lives. I don't think it's always the most healthy thing in the world, but you tend to because you really don't want to deal with what people think. I think generally the the, the stereotypes towards gaming and the, the beliefs that people have towards gaming have changed tremendously um, as sci-fi and fantasy have become more mainstream, but I think some of it is still there. Oh, and certainly even outside of religion. I mean, most of us you know, worry about, you know, even just at work, where there's not, you know, it's a very secular place. Uh, you, you know, are, do you admit to being a gamer? Do you admit to what kind of games you play? And 
sometimes you're surprised and find out that oh yeah three other people play and you know. yeah that happened to me at work with a with a guy and it was really kind of humorous um that he had when he moved in and, and started working for the company that he actually attended cons he was an avid gamer um and yeah that you get that which is great but there's always this kind of thing in the back of your mind you know you don't want to it's not so much you care what people think you just don't want to deal with it sometimes yeah, I'm one of those people who lets the the geek flag fly high at work. I don't. I everybody knows I'm a gamer. Everybody knows I do this podcast. Yeah, and and it's funny. And people at work have no no clue that I have a game company. Some a few do, but not much. I mean, and I just my my that work is that work, and this work is this work. So it doesn't really bother me. I have a lot of friends, and all of them know. Everyone knows that that's friends with me exactly what I do, and uh, that's fine. So you said Fable Environments has been around for 10 years. What was your first published work? It Well, that's a good question. I think our first published work was the High Risers, three maps in a bundle that came out roughly this, you know, within a few months of each other. The first one, I believe, was the High Rise. We did three. It was a high rise building with a repeating floor plan. We did a, um, a two-story warehouse and then a strip mall kind of office, so single-story office. Um, those came out about the same, but I think it was the the high rise that we did first. And I've used both the warehouse and uh, the third one that you mentioned, the strip mall. The strip yeah. mall. I've used both of those. Yeah, and, and uh, you, since then we've released, uh, geez, almost uh, over two dozen maps. We're kind of slow in our release process because each and each of the maps is has been researched and based on structures that we can find. So we don't, it, although it's not an identical copy or anything like that, we want to make sure that we have extreme realism when we present a map. Yeah, it's more authenticity. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I remember some of my favorite memories come from other GMs using your maps. Like the, I think it's a Victorian house map. Oh, yeah, map. yeah. Um, you know, just, I know Ron Blessing and Justin Suzuki and Ed Palace were making an awesome game out of, of we were you know, hold up in that Victoria mansion and then the, the enemy that I probably were undead were approaching from the outside. And, you know, it, it's funny just thinking that you can kind of remembering that map can bring back the, uh, the memory of that game. Yeah. We, I mean, I have nothing against the air to the mind, but I have seen the benefits of having a shared space. Um, I've seen people just print out an eight and a half by 11 on the map and say, here you are. But I'll tell you, seeing, adds a different level of realism and feel to a game, whether you're using my maps or whoever's. Um, I think it really helps tremendously to, to immerse you. And that immersive experience is just incredible. Now, I think it adds a tactical level, too, it does. that you won't get from just theater of the mind because everybody doesn't have the same picture. Well, and it's funny, though. Sometimes the GM will have a different picture than your players, and it can get confusing, too. So having that shared space can, can help eliminate some of that uh, as well. Right, you're not spending that amount of time trying to explain two or three different times to, to two or three different people because everybody's seeing it completely different. One guy thought the door was one place. One guy thought the door was another place. It just makes it much easier. Exactly. Here's a funny thing that I don't know if you guys knew, but my wife is not a gamer. Um, she's the one that draws all these maps. She's an interior designer and a drafter. She's been doing this for many, many years, but she doesn't game at all. And so she sometimes looks at what I'm asking her to do and and says, you know, really? They they like this? They want this? Really? <laughs> um, so that's – and Ron will tell this joke over and over again, but all of her maps have bathrooms, and that's why. Um, it's because she draws them. So if she did the Enterprise, there would be – there it'd be yeah, Absolutely, because she's going to draw it like she – like it's a regular project. And that's, I think, what's really added to the credibility of our product is it's not just this thing we're making for a game. This is really a stripped-down version of what she would normally do. They're very playable, though. So, I mean, do you make concessions between the strictly, like, livable architectural space and a gameable space? We've talked about that, and I have a friend of mine, a very, very good friend of mine, that's talked to us about issues of squeezing and things like that. And Chris has never compromised. This is the building as it is. And I think that's actually added a, la a layer to players. It's not the game. The map has not been designed to be to be put into a game. You're putting the map into your game. And so that adds a level of realism that sometimes you don't see because the map has been adapted to fit the system, if you will. 
Yeah, I, I found that out with some other kind of, you know, purpose-built for gaming. It almost just becomes uh, window dressing because there aren't any strategic issues with the map because it's way too open or it's just, you know, it's just a picture versus... You know, there are some interesting things you can do with actual real spaces and having to line up at certain times with other players and be vulnerable to getting fireballed or whatever. You know, it's real spaces make for more interesting situations. Exactly, exactly. And, I, and we've, we, I found that when I've run with them, too. But yeah, I mean, it, it all goes back into just building the, the shared space. Perfect. The, um, so here's a question. One, one of your my favorite products of yours is the Knights Templar Guide. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, love the, love the guide. The, and I, I still think there needs to be a Crusades RPG out there. I, I bug Shane about it. Um, one of these days there might be a Weird Wars Crusades. But, the um, you know, hearkening back to your deep history in religious history, um, how have you handled the role of religion and faith in your settings, uh, especially where they overlap with real-world history? I mean, you know, no one's too, currently worshipping the, the Greek gods, but, you know, you, you've got the most present in your, your current system. But the... Um, do you allow for a dual approach, one more practical, one more fantastical, or how does that work out? What's your theory on, on game design and religion? It depends on the game. I mean, for example, um, what we did in the Templar Guide is we used um, – it was very historical, but I've actually uh, – when, when creating worlds, we've actually used um, real-world examples to help even though it's a fantasy setting. Um, that That's one way of approaching religion and gaming. I mean – for example, the Knights Templar is a very good example of what a paladinal group would look like. Um, and so my, modeling a group of paladins, an organization of paladins, uh, against the Templar Hospital or whoever, it's a great example to use. Um, it gets a little bit more dicey when you're talking about bringing in religion, per se, into a game, um, especially if that's something that's a modern religion. Um, I have written an adventure. I did one called Operation Lightning where the the, um, the the medic was actually a priest attached to the Vatican and had miracles. Nice. Um, yeah, and it fit, you know, it's a weird war setting. It fits very well. Um, I have no problem at all having a setting where um, your, your, your religious professional has the access to miracles. Um, I just try and stay away from making a statement, if that makes any sense. Oh, um, no, exactly. I mean, it's kind of the question I've been asking myself, you know, in the formative process of a setting, which I want to use both real-world history and have religious elements, is do you have to decide who's right? And I, I've seen criticism of some other games where the authors clearly wanted to decide this pantheon is right, whether it's the Christian pantheon or the Judaic pantheon or Islam or whatever. Um, I didn't want to do that, and I'm thinking, well... You know, how, how do you balance that, and you know, how do you make game choices? And, like, John Wick has got his 7C out, and it's 7C is obviously very you know, European-focused, inspired. I mean, a lot of it is Europe with the serial numbers filed off. But, you know, by simply changing the names a little bit, you kind of avoid uh, some of the criticism or some of the mental blocks people have about it being real history. Yeah, sometimes you're purposely silent on things. For example... Go back to Olympus Inc. Um, you have Olympian gods. What about the Judeo-Christian tradition? We just haven't said anything, um, and that that allows you as a GM to kind of tailor your response. Um, you know, we've got we've heard of the old adage of the Olympian gods, gods or the aliens, or you know, whatever it is. Um, is God just a label? But um, I think sometimes you can be silent, and that can be helpful too. That's pretty profound. I like that answer. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. <laughs> so That's my one another, for the month. Another, Sorry. Another question for you is with Olympus Inc. and Fable Environments and all of this, what would you advise potential setting creators? Do you have any advice you could give them? Think through things. Um, one of the biggest things we did is before we started writing anything is we started talking through um, the potential – uh, pitfalls and what do we want things to look like on a high level, low level, things like that. I think if you're working with a partner, and this is the first time I've ever done that, but I think that's why this works so well is because it wasn't just me in my head. But even if you're in that situation, um, think about things 
uh, and the effects that, that what you're putting down on paper have as uh, on the whole. So you know, for example, for example, for us, very quickly, if you put the Titans in charge, well then they're just gonna kill everybody. That we just know that they don't like human beings. They don't like the Olympians. So that's a very short setting there. Um, so you have to have a mechanism to stop them from doing that, and we do. We and we had to we had to create one, and that adds the, to the balance. And so thinking about that is extremely important. And how was the licensing process with Pinnacle? Was it easy? Well, um, it was extremely easy since I kind of know the person with licensing very very well. <laughs> but even there you go. Even that being said, though, I mean they pride themselves on extremely high quality. So even though they knew who I was and they knew Fabled Environments, they were very frank about the quality they expected out of us. And I appreciated that because it's it, 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 you look at the free licensee, um, and it's, it, it is, but there's still a huge expectation in terms of quality, and, and I think that's great. So since you've already you know, jumped the hurdle of running a successful Kickstarter – publishing your own setting getting the, the savage worlds license in the future are you looking for other authors to submit work through you like reality blurs does or are you going to be a just a charles white publisher now we want to expand out um the one of the, the strategic reasons we moved with this project um is because i wanted to move from just being a publisher of accessories if you will to a full publisher so what i'd like to do is i like to do uh, continue the line of Olympus Inc., but I'd like to expand outward and offer other lines as well, um, like Re Reality Blurs and some of the other very successful um, publishing companies. So that's what I anticipate in the next few years of being able to do is provide more products and feature some uh, other authors. It's not going to all be about me. I may co-author, but I think a lot of what moving forward is going to be just having good quality authors um, present settings and adventures. We have a local local author here, uh, Sarah yeah. Martinez, who you guys actually published one of her adventures. So are you looking for just single adventures as well? Absolutely. We've had, you know, like people, folks like Sarah um, and others have uh, submitted adventure ideas, and we've gone through that as kind of the, quote, one sheet. Although, as, as you probably know, sometimes one sheets really aren't one sheet. But um, that and shorter adventures, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. We want to do that because... I think presenting that type of product to the community is great. It's something you can pick up, you can throw on a table and play, um, and then expanded sizes and, and, and uh, full 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 um, uh, full worlds would be great too. So, how can people get in touch with you if if they're interested in trying to uh, send you something to take a look at? Sure, um, they can always email me. It's simply Charles at FabledEnvironments.com. I'm always happy to, to chat with folks about it. Um, you know, uh, things are going to be dependent upon our release schedule and, and just other variables. But, um, you know, you guys may know um, from the forums, Eric Lamoureux, he, he uh, submitted, and I'm trying to get that laid out. He's got this absolutely crazy adventure, which is awesome. And so we'll be getting that out. But that was one that was submitted through um, a contest that we had, actually, and I was just ecstatic what he presented to us. But um, we'll do more of that, and we'll just, uh, as folks kind of hit us up with ideas, just know that we're not big, so it does take us time to process some of this stuff. Sure. Give us some more details on that for our listeners who haven't been to the forums to know what the contest was about and what Eric's submission was. Well, we want, it was actually through um, uh, SBN, and so we ran a contest that basically said um, submit a, a adventure seed, if you will, um, based on our maps, what would you do with them? What what's kind of a a one sheet ask kind of feel you do with it? And we um, we rewarded um, the top with our full catalog, and then we we kind of pared it down and offered some other product at, at different levels. Um, so that was a lot of fun. We got some really creative uh, submissions that SBN went through and, and picked, and then um, Eric came out on top of that. Nice. One. And what was his idea? What would you give us a little uh, preview? Um, well, you have a disgruntled, it, you have somebody that's disgruntled that, uh, finds a alchemic re recipe that, um, 
causes incredible amounts of havoc, and <laughs> you become the people that try and figure out what in the world is going on. That's awesome. The um, so what, what besides the ones that you're putting out? What are your favorite Savage World settings to play? Oh geez, um, I love World War Two. I always have. Um, Interface Zero is amazing. Um, I haven't had a chance to play ETU yet, but we got our start with um, as a licensee. I mean, as a um, uh, uh, imprint, kind of a licensee-esque type of situation with um, Twelve to Midnight. So that's I've heard about that project for many, many years. Um, yeah, I, I, I just I've played in so many different areas that I just I love it all. I really do. I'm not a big sci-fi guy. I never have been. Um, I can go kind of soft sci-fi, but when we start getting into the hard stuff, it just really isn't my cup of tea. Nice. The um, Do you have a home group you run or play with? or Not right now. We, we still have uh, our original group that we get with every once in a while, but a lot of what I've been doing is just kind of one-shots at conventions. Uh, we've got some – got a very strong um, group of uh, game stores here where there's a lot of games run, so I'll do some stuff with them on occasion as well. But that's the – joy of being a publisher and i think most of your publishers will tell you this is that you don't have time to play as much as you used to so speaking of conventions fabled environments does something that i find extremely cool and that is if somebody wants to use one of your maps at their convention for their game you will actually give them a copy of a map is that correct absolutely absolutely we will um and the reason we do that is because we can't be at every convention and we want to support GMs. I, th I think it's extremely critical. But also, it, it's a win-win for everybody. You get a good quality map, and then and it's a digital format, so I can't print it for you. But you get that, and then um, people get to see who we are. So I think it's a win-win. I wish more people would take take us up on that. But I think there's a lot of people out there saying, "Wait a minute, what's the catch?" Oh hey, yeah, no like, catch. We uh, Charles was was magnanimous enough to give all of the savages, the Rocky Mountain savages, a. Uh, copy of his bar map uh, in honor of our 100, 100 games, Savage 100, and uh, the Friday Night Bar Fight. So uh, I'm, I, that map is going to make a, a comeback uh, here at our, our future conventions, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, we're just happy to do it. We're happy to support conventions any way that we can uh, with product, um, whatever we can do, because, I mean, it's about building the game community. I mean, first and foremost, I'm a gamer, and I have been for many, many, many years. And, I mean, we want to support gaming, and especially the Savage Worlds community, so anything we can do with that. That's wonderful. Yeah, thanks again for the, the uh, super generosity. We, oh, you know, The Savages appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was happy to do it. Well, excellent. Well, we're extremely happy to have you on the show, and uh, best of luck, and I, I'm sure the Kickstarter will uh, go like gangbusters uh, in April when it restarts, and I don't think you'll have any problem getting that thing funded again. Well, wonderful. We appreciate it. Hopefully one of yeah. these days I can get up to see you guys. Yeah, the next goal will be to bring you out for one of our conventions. Yeah, we'll that'd be a blast. get some Olympus Inc. Uh, in person. There you go. That'd be a blast. Maybe the, maybe the blacks can shove you in their, their, their carry-on. <laughs> <laughs> they are everywhere. <laughs> they do get around. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Charles. We really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, for your generosity in helping gaming and in really the, the entire country and now uh, worldwide since you're branching out to Italy and everything else. So... Well, Thanks so much. And wonderful. And if anybody does want to take advantage of that, um, all I need to know is what the convention is and let me know what, you want, what map you want. And just email me, the same email address, charles at fabledenvironments.com, and we'll hook you up. Excellent. Thanks so much, Charles. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of The Savage Cast. The corporate gods are petty and cruel. Thanks again to Charles White for taking time to join us. Be the first in line for our next installment, Do You Even Riffs, Bro? Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or on our feed links, which are at savagecast.com on the right-hand side. Uh, please do leave us rave reviews and glowing feedback. That's what feeds our soul. Be sure to send us show ideas and questions to uproar at savagecast.com. And uh, without further ado, here's a small preview of our next show. Thanks for listening. How did you get uh, Kevin to agree to convert Rifts to Savage Worlds? Uh, because he's per he's famously protective of his game setting. So I, I said at the very beginning, uh, you know, over a year ago, that I expected the two most popular questions to be that one 
and how we'll be handling mega damage. And it turned out I was right because they really are the two most popular questions. Here's the thing. It's going to sound ridiculous, but I just, I asked. Um, you know, that's the, the short answer. The, sh- the longer answer is I was working for DriveThruRPG at the time. And you had to realize one of my superpowers uh, is I've been friends with everybody in this industry. Uh, I started back in 1988 working professionally. I did a book called The Fantasy Role-Playing Gamers Bible, which enabled me to interview and meet everyone and uh, made all these amazing connections. And I've always just been excited to be in the industry, very respectful. I always try to treat everybody's work and their efforts with respect, even if I didn't particularly like a, a, a game system or something like that. I never tried to trash it. So anytime I did reviews, there were more overviews and tried to share and People like him appreciated that, right? I, so I, I, I made the joke in the Finnish Role Playing Gamers Bible about this is the most popular game system nobody plays, which was not true, but it was kind of funny because a lot of people were trying to figure out how to play Rifts because it is a complex and involved game uh, as, as it is, but it has its fans and has since you know 1990. Um, but the thing is, at the time I was working for uh, DriveThruRPG as their uh, marketing and, and communications manager for you know the sites and stuff, uh, I was also involved in business development, and so Steve Wick and I had been trying to get Kevin to put his stuff up for PDF forever, and he had been just absolutely resistant. And I finally got him to agree. I came up to Michigan at the time I was living in uh, Tennessee. No, uh, you were living in Alabama. Was it? Was it? Was, was, were we, we were together. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So yeah, so I was living in Alabama, and Steve <laughs> covered the costs. I, temporal knowledge is something I suck at, so Corinne's almost always right about that. Um, so Did you I drove, have a banjo on your knee. <laughs> Can we? I thought we fired him from the show. <laughs> I thought I did too, but I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I, I did drive up to Michigan. I met with him personally. I showed him and his team how the site would work. I showed him the numbers on how he would not poach his print sales. Anyway, I basically proved to him he was going to make money. So he, he signed on. I said, well, well, I've got you in a good mood. I've got this crazy idea that I think would be a lot of fun. And I said, I think I could expose the setting of Rifts to generations of gamers that have only heard of it but haven't played. And, are, and you know, they're not necessarily going to come to it from this perspective, but I could bring them in from Savage Worlds. And he said, sure, let's talk. Let's make it happen. And it was really that easy. I mean, it was because I'd always been respectful. I'd been a good friend. Um, you know, the problem is so many people either came to him and said, you have to do this because it would be awesome and we'll make lots of money, but they said it in a way that didn't show any kind of respect, or they went for the whole forgiveness instead of permission, which does not fly with him at all. If you don't get permission, you won't get forgiveness, and he will tell you stop. Um, but also, you know, realize, you know, like Kevin, like the rest of us, we've all grown older, we've all grown wiser, you know, and he certainly mellowed, so this was just a good time for him to explore some new opportunities. He really respects Shane and what Shane's done with Pinnacle. He's respected the stuff that I've done, so we were the right people to ask at the right time. So it was as simple as that. Nice.